Gavin was already up and pushing toward the heaving, bulging lines in front of him. The men here had already fired their muskets, and there was no way to reload. Some had fixed bayonets, the knife handles set inside the open barrels. Others had drawn swords. Others were using muskets as clubs. Over their heads, musket fire rang out from the murder holes, and stones the size of a man's head were thrown through the machicolations in the arch. But no Luxon poured down. Either the drafters above had exhausted themselves long ago, or they'd been killed, or they had never made it to their positions. One more day, or Holden. One more day, and this wall would have been impregnable. One more hour! Gavin pushed into the melee at last. The area around the gate was a charnel house. The stench of magic and gore mingled. Blood covered the ground thickly enough that the combatants splashed it up around their legs as they fought. The bodies of men and monsters mingled, tripped up attackers and defenders. A pile of bodies filled the area directly beneath the gate, and as King Horrible's men climbed up and over them, that made them targets for the soldiers farther back in Gavin's army, who otherwise couldn't shoot for fear of hitting their own men. Gavin saw Blackguard fall, her leg ripped open by a glass-like jagged foot claw of an exhausted blue-white. Gavin raised his musket. The white's head exploded in red mist. Gavin flung the musket at a burning red-white that was moving to embrace a wounded soldier who was backed up against the wall, weaponless. Gavin didn't see what happened. He grabbed the wounded Blackguard and tried to haul her to her feet. She was far heavier than she should have been. Gavin blinked, his exhaustion coming back to him in a rush. No, he was just weak. Someone grabbed the wounded woman from him and hauled her off. Gavin could hear incoming mortars. Too distant to matter, but several of them. He saw a woman in that great pile of bodies at the gate, trying to crawl away, wounded but not dead. Next to her, a man was clawing at the air, blind, because he was missing half of his face. Luxon fires burned on a dozen corpses, and Luxon dust was everywhere. Gavin caught a glimpse of the faces of his blackguards. He could see their delight, their sudden purpose. Where were the rest of them? They were rushing over to him. He pulled his pistols from his sash. The red-white, body covered in pyre jelly, his entire form burning, ran toward him. If Gavin hadn't arrived so late to the battle, it would have drafted instead and incinerated him. Gavin pulled the trigger. The ball punched into the red-white's chest, but didn't stop its momentum. Gavin stepped to the side and slashed the blade of the dagger across the white throat. He was more aware of than actually saw the two blackguards streak past him. By the time he recovered and was standing once more, one blackguard had been impaled on a great blue Luxon sword that a blue-white had drafted in the place of its right arm. Even dying, the blackguard had latched on with both hands to keep the white from throwing him clear. The other blackguard, Gavin thought his name was Honestan, had circled the creature and hacked a sword at its neck. Luluxon shards exploded at each great impact. The creature struggled to free itself, but couldn't. On the third cut, Honestan's sword broke through the Luluxon and went into its neck. The white's will was broken, and Honestan's fourth cut severed its head. One of King Horrible's mirror men came over the top of the bodies piled chest deep, scrabbling, using his hands, his drawn sword awkward. He saw Amistan's back to him and charged. Instinctively, Gavin tried to lash out with Luxon, but even the touch of magic made him want to vomit. It was like offering a drink to a man with a hangover. 
He weaved, nearly lost consciousness, and leveled the pistol. At the last moment, Amistan spun to face his attacker and moved directly into the line of fire. Gavin's shot blew off the back of his head. A second later, the mirror man ran Amistan through. But he was already dead. No! King Haradol had realized the same thing Gavin had. The gate had to be taken tonight, or the wall itself would never be taken at all. So the king had sent his own personal guard to get it done. There were only maybe 30 blackguards left, and the appearance of the dazzling mirror man would easily be enough to make the defenders break, especially without the blackguards. It wasn't right that so much valor should result in failure, so much death. Gavin wasn't thinking clearly. He knew that. He didn't care. As the sun's last rays kissed the earth, Gavin drafted. It was like drinking vomit. It was like diving headfirst into sewage. It was too much for his body. He didn't care. He threw everything he had into this. This wasn't for Gavin Guile. To hell with Gavin Guile. This was for everyone who fought and died for him. They'd stood for him. He couldn't fail them. Not even if it meant his life. The magic was like a second sun being born within the gate arch. In moments, it was born, stood, and leapt forward. The mirror men became radiant, their mirror armor reflecting light a thousand directions. But mirror armor was to magic, like normal armor was to weapons. Good for deflecting glancing blows, but nowhere close to invincible. A rushing wind filled Gavin's ears an instant before a cone of pure magic swept through him and blasted forth, exploding to the width of the entire gate. The gate became like the barrel of a vast cannon. Mirror men went incandescent, standing for a moment longer than seemed possible, their armor glowing, then glowing red hot, then glowing white hot, then ripping apart like everything else. The gate area was scoured clean. The bodies were gone, and a wide area around the gate on King Haradol's side was scorched and blackened. Gavin stood looking out, and a figure stumbled into his view. A big man dressed in rich clothes, now blackened. King Haradol. Evidently the man hadn't just sent his personal guards to attack the gate. He'd come with them. Gavin and Haradol stood, facing each other, 40 paces away. Gavin could read the awe and uncertainty in the big man's very stance. Then, Gavin's body gave out. There was something white in the dirt near his face, or he was going blind. Spots swam in every color before his eyes. Men were lifting him, carrying him away he heard the distant sounds of renewed battle. As the blackguards lifted him, surrounding him with their bodies and withdrawing from the field, he saw King Haradol through the open gate, charging the gate, alone. Whatever else Gavin had done, he destroyed the barricade and every other impediment in that area. A few men joined their king, 
The dirt around Rask was exploding in little puffs as snipers tried to kill him, but none hit. It was like the man was charmed, blessed, protected by some old god mightier than Orholum. Then Gavin saw Tremblefist's bloodied, gunpowder-streaked face. Forgive me, Lord Prism. You did everything you could. More. As night fell, the plane didn't darken. At first, Liv had no idea why. She had been walking all day, stuck behind the wagon, wearing an old Potassos with the brim low so her drafter's eyes would be less conspicuous. She'd heard the rumble of guns earlier, but assumed it was posturing. There was no way the army was at Garriston yet. Along with what appeared to be half of the entire camp, she went forward to see what was so bright. There were so many people covering the plane that Liv almost missed the signs of the battle that had concluded mere hours before, obvious as they were. Trenches where cannonballs had landed simply became ditches for the wagons to avoid. Slippery, muddy, bloody areas next to those cannon scars with fragments of armor littered about were just places to watch your footing in the near darkness. The pungent aroma of gunpowder was already dissipating. The last of the great lines of soldiers were marching through the gate even now, forcing all the camp followers to wait until after they'd gone inside and set up camp. Liv heard wild rumors of huge magical conflagrations and epic battle, but she was skeptical. King Haradol's army had taken the wall in an afternoon. It couldn't have been much of a fight. Her father was a great general. He'd only lost one battle in his life, and that barely. He must have decided that they wouldn't finish the wall in time and had withdrawn to the city walls. He'd probably just had some cannoneers stay to inflict some easy damage on King Haradol's men and then withdraw. The thought made Liv feel better. If her father had chosen to make his stand elsewhere, then he surely wouldn't have been in danger today. The idea that he might have fought and died less than a league away and that she hadn't had so much as a sick intuition was too terrible to entertain. She'd been so caught up in looking for Kip that she hadn't even realized they were this close to the city. But all the thoughts and worries and distractions faded as she pushed through the crowds lined up, looking at the wall. No one went within 50 paces of it. As Liv finally pushed to the front, she saw why. An enormous spider, larger than a man, had strung up a dozen corpses. No, not corpses. At least one of the web-wrapped bundles was struggling. As Liv watched, the man tore his head free, his hands bound tied up against his chest. Upside down, the man wriggled, trying to free his arm, setting himself swinging gently. The spider didn't notice, as it tended to another bundle ten paces away. Liv saw a sword stuck in the ground not far from the man. He tore his right arm free and began clawing at the rest of the webs holding him, but couldn't rip them open. Then he saw the sword. He swung, reaching for it. Didn't quite reach it. Oh, Harlem! Oh, Harlem, save him! Look at that spider! The spider had frozen, as if it heard something. Then it turned, just as the man swung farther. It turned, its eyes glowing a sickly green. The man's hands closed on the sword hilt, just as the spider pounced. The man swung, missed, and the spider's jaws closed on his neck. For one terrible instant, the man's entire body tensed, face contorting in pain. 
Then those awful jaws scissored together, and his head fell to the ground and rolled. His free arm, still holding the sword, spasmed for several long moments as blood gushed out of his neck onto the ground. Then he dropped the sword. It speared into the ground, right where he'd found it. The spider latched onto his bleeding neck and began feeding. Liv was transfixed, as was everyone else. Eventually, the spider pushed the man's arm back against his chest and wrapped him in webs once more. Then it picked up his head and put it back with his body. While the spider was fixing the webs, wrapping the man's head back in place, one of the underbundles began moving. I've been watching for two hours. They don't, none of them get away. This fella gets about 30 paces before she rips out his guts. And, and them two, they try to fight him together, but it's the same every time. I know it, but I can't stop watching. The same every time? Liv looked back to the first man in position of the sword below him. It was the same as before, exactly the same. The blood that had pooled beneath his severed head had slowly receded to nothingness. This wasn't a murder, it was a mummer's show, which actually didn't make it any less impressive. What are you doing? Liv hadn't even realized that she was walking forward, but she didn't stop. As she got closer, it became more and more apparent that she'd been right. She walked even closer, as sure enough, the second man tore free and ran away. But then the spider stopped in its pursuit, froze, and turned. The spider bounded back with great speed, going straight for Liv. Liv froze, her heart leaping into her throat. The spider stopped right in front of her, great pincer jaws snapping together, four legs lifted to grab her. Too frightened to move, Liv watched those jaws clack-clack together, not ten paces away, soundlessly. <gasps> Liv tightened her eyes and saw that the ground around her was laced with superviolet triggers. Brilliant. She stepped to her left, and the spider didn't move until she stepped into the next zone, and then it was there, fast. And now that she was this close, she could see that the cavern behind the spider looked all wrong. It wasn't nearly as deep as it appeared from 50 paces out. It was like a painting, with light and shadow used to make it appear that there was an entire cave where there was none. And the spider itself was crafted entirely of primary, stable Luxon colors, layered so that it wouldn't be obvious that it was a Luxon creation. As Liv moved past the triggers, the spider went bounding after the man who had escaped, but somehow hadn't taken advantage of the last 30 seconds to actually run away. The spider ripped out his guts, just as the man had said. Liv touched the Luxon of the wall and immediately forgot about the genius of the spider mummery. The yellow Luxon was flawless. It was perfection. Forgetting where she was, she drafted directly from the yellow glow of the wall. Drafting from yellow Luxon had once been pursued as the perfect source of light, at least for yellows, but it had never panned out. Something was always lost, it was always inefficient. But with an entire wall, leagues long, inefficiency didn't matter. Liv drew a little torch of solid Luxon into her hand to better see the wall when illuminated by a second source of light. Sometimes drafters hid things in their construction that... Hey, mistress! What are you doing out here? All drafters are supposed to be inside the walls already! Liv saw a grizzled old soldier coming toward her, wearing the uniform of a Tyrian sergeant, a brace of nice wheel-lock pistols at his belt, and an empty scabbard. 
and his face was smudged with gunpowder or smoke, and there were light bandages wrapped around his hands. He glanced at Liv's forearms as he approached. I... Uh... Ah, <laughs> you'll dazzle by Brightwater Wall. I know, I know all the draft disease. Where's your arms? Liv guessed that he meant the color of embraces all the other drafters wore. I, um, was invited to the Color Lord's party last night, and I had a bit much to drink, I'm afraid. I fell asleep behind a bush, and my unit either didn't find me or thought it would be funny to leave me there, mostly. Naked. <laughs> Liv blushed, as much from the brazenness of her lie as anything. I'm lucky I still have my specs. Well, I'd probably drink a lot of armor after that party myself. <laughs> Put on your specs and go to the gate, and they'll let you through, and then you'll go to Quartermaster Zid. He's a real bastard, and he'll give you all sorts of trouble, but... Oh, hell, come with me, I'll take you. It makes me, Master Sergeant Galen DeLillo, sucker for a pouty lip and a clueless gaze. Hey! Joking, joking. You actually remind me of my daughter. And if she's clueless, she's got it all from her father. <laughs> come on. And you! All you damn fools! It ain't real! It's just a show! Stop piddling yourselves! With that, he took her to the gate. Even though the soldiers continued to march through, they'd left a narrow two lanes on one side for messengers and nobles and drafters to pass, and the guards there knew the Master Sergeant and let him right through. Inside the wall, he weaved quickly between tents, walking fast, and cut to the front of a line of lower-ranking soldiers to speak with their quartermaster. I need yellow rags for this girl here. Quartermaster Zid turned. I don't recognize her. She's not with the units on supply. Forget it. Oh, are you gonna give me hell tonight, you crazy old ninny? Do I need to put my foot up your ass? Ninny? You come harping on me like a harridan, and you expect roses in mine? Oh, you ought to pound that ugly nose of yours flat. <laughs> I seem to recall you trying that a time or two. <laughs> the quartermaster grinned, and Liv's terror faded as she realized the two were good friends. I know you're happy to see I'm alive. Come on, so just do me a favor. Give the girl the rags. Yellow? Yes. Zid grabbed a list. Name? Liv. No Livs, sorry. There's not a yellow drafter named Liv in the entire army. Liv's mouth went dry. You and you. Zid pointed to some soldiers waiting in line. Arrest this woman. We'll need to report an imposter. Oh, for holem's oh, sake, Zid! What do you think she is, a spy? She's probably barely 16. What kind of a swiving fool would send a baby to spy on us? Maybe a very cunning fool who thought we would discount her for that very reason. They say some boy over in their Kyurgen's tent is his own bastard. Who'd send a child? Those wily bastards, that's who. I'm 17. Come on, Zid. Those lists are barely good enough to wipe your ass on once the fighting starts, and you know that. Like you've never done this before. Gotcha! <laughs> that was for the ninny crack. Now we're even. Even? Oh, <laughs> we're not even close to even. Nah, duty calls. Nice to meet you, Liv. And if you ever can, knock this fella down a notch or two, would ya? <laughs> Gladly. In minutes, she was alone. And donning her sleeves for the first time, she was in. Now all she had to do was save Kip and Karis. And really, how hard could that be? Not for the first time in the last few days. Liv wanted to swear and throw things and whine and complain, and maybe just a little, she wanted to cry. Instead, she settled herself, 
and headed deeper into camp. When Gavin opened his eyes, it was bright out. There was a figure sitting beside his bed. He looked at her. His mother. Oh, thank Orholem. I thought I was awake. <laughs> his mother's laughter sounded somehow freer than it had in years. It's almost noon, son. I know I hardly have to lecture you on duty, but you really should get up. Noon? Oh, oh. Trying to sit up was a mistake. His whole body hurt. His head hurt. His eyes hurt. He held himself still while the hammer blows to the back of his head receded from ten-weight sledges to five-weight sledges, and his eyes found focus once more. He usually didn't get lightsick, but then he'd never used so much magic as he had yesterday either. Not since Sundered Rock, and he'd been young then. It's almost noon on Sunday? We thought it best to spare you greeting the sun and the dawn processional. It was going to be a more informal Sunday this year, regardless. Or Hollam will forgive us. Mother, what are you doing here? It's time, Gavin. Time? For my freeing. Gavin felt a wave of cold dread course down his body, from head to toe. No, not his mother. She'd said sometime in the next five years. She'd given him time to prepare, but it couldn't be this early. Father? Your father has made far too many decisions for me. The freeing is between a drafter and a Hollum. So he doesn't know? I'm sure he knows by now. You ran away? <sighs> Son, I've told your father I wished to join the freeing every year for the last five years. He forbade it. I can feel myself slipping away. I haven't drafted for three years and my life feels grey. I love your father dearly, but he's always been a very selfish man. Andros wants to hold on to his life and his power forever, and he doesn't want to be alone. I pity him, son, and I've given him these years for the love we once shared. You know I'm loyal, but we both know he'll see this as a betrayal. And I know that he'll blame you rather than himself, but if I have to choose between my duty to your father and my duty to Orholem... Orholem wins. I've sent a courier to Corvin Danavis. Corvin's alive! At the wall, I was afraid... He's well, but your defenders lost the wall despite your heroics. Only his mother could talk about his heroics without a hint of irony in her voice. Anyway, I've sent a courier to let him know you're awake. I'm glad to see him again. He's a good man. Felia knew, of course, that Corvin had taken a life in exile in order for Gavin's masquerade to work. But as always, she was circumspect, just in case there were spies eavesdropping. Gavin's mother had always had a gift for figuring out how to live her life and let her opinions be known, despite the pressures of court life and the demands of protocol, secrecy, and discretion. I'll see you tonight, son. Gavin got dressed slowly after she left, testing his body to see if he'd done any permanent damage with yesterday's exertions. He was sore, but he surely deserved worse. His muscles would loosen up as the day progressed, and he thought he'd be ready to draft the necessities this evening. Corvin came in. Oh, you're up. Not much the worse for wear. 
Thanks for letting you sleep in, but you know you need my help today. What's the situation? Corvin grabbed Gavin's face in both of his hands and stared in his eyes. What the hell are you doing? You should be dead. Do you remember how much you drafted yesterday? I remember it vividly, thank you. Uh, including quite a headache that you're not making any better. After staring for a few more moments, Corvin released him. <sighs> I'm sorry, Lord Prism. They say there are signs when a prism starts dying. I have no idea what they are, but I figured if anything would break you, it would be what you did yesterday. Even a prism shouldn't be able to draft that much. But your eyes look fine. How did we lose the wall? Rask Haradul is either brilliant and crazy or just crazy, that's how. So no one shot that moron as he charged the gate? They got lucky. I think you scared both sides half to death with... Well, with what you did. The snipers were shaking so hard they couldn't hit an easy target. Then, when the men saw that Rask was charging and you had fallen, they thought you were dead. That he'd somehow defeated you. The Black Guards pulled out to take you to safety, and most of the best Tyrians we had had already been killed in the fighting. Gavin could imagine it now. The prism down, the elite Black Guards suddenly pulling out, and the enemy charging as if unfazed by all Gavin had done. No wonder the Tyrians had lost courage. So, King Haradul's men joined his charge, and what? Our men melted? Got massacred? What? Well, they actually held the gate for a few minutes. They bungled the troop refresher maneuvers I'd tried to teach them, though. That was when fresh musketeers with loaded weapons would switch with the frontline troops. But they were passing loaded muskets up the ranks, handing back fired muskets to be reloaded. They were losing ground, but not fast, and the wall defenses were holding. It was getting dark. I thought we were going to hold it. And then? They ran out of powder. Oh, there, there was plenty elsewhere, of course. I sent men to take care of it, but... Well, war happens. Our defenders broke and ran. King Haradul didn't send anyone after us. I managed a fairly orderly retreat for the men in the wall. I suppose Haradul thinks we'll surrender. Maybe he thought Mercy would accomplish his objectives more quickly than wiping out as many men as he could. Or he didn't want his men killing each other in the darkness. Or he's devout and this... This new religion of his forbids night fighting. Old religion, I think. Well, they're not giving any sign of attacking today. Sunday is holy even to pagans. So we have until tomorrow. What do you want to do, Lord Prism? When you thought I was incapacitated, what did you decide to do? Whatever good King Haradul gained in the city by sparing the men who fled yesterday, he more than lost by using color whites in battle. The city is wild with tales of monsters. They're terrified. Two days ago, I was worried they would turn against us in a heartbeat. They watched you build a wall to protect them, and they saw what you were protecting them from. So now they trust you, and they revile the man who slaughtered their friends with the help of abominations. This whole city is yours. If you show your face, they'll follow you to the gates of the Evernight. Corvin, the question. Well, we can't win. The old stone wall around the city couldn't keep out a determined mule. Rask took most of our gunpowder when he took the wall and all of our cannons. Half our muskets were left on the field as men dropped them when they fled. We'd be lucky to kill a few thousand before they took the inner wall, and once we start fighting street to street, we could kill quite a few at some choke points, but... 
and eventually their numbers guarantee it will be a slaughter. With their numbers and our lack of material, this city is indefensible. There's no strategy I can imagine in which we win. We can hurt them badly while we lose, but that's not the same. I was preparing a retreat. A retreat? Corvin Danavis had never lost a battle. Well, if one didn't count Sundered Rock as a loss, which Gavin didn't, if you mean to lose and you do, in exactly the way you intended, it's not really a loss, is it? Even a retreat is beset with unforeseen difficulties, Lord Prism. The presence of the monsters that put everyone in the city on our side also means everyone in the city wants out. They think they'll be slaughtered and eaten if they stay, and there's no way we can evacuate so many people with the ships and the time we have. Gavin threw on his ceremonial white cloak. Have our spies reported anything about Karis? Still alive as of yesterday. I imagine he was planning to use her to barter with if he needed to. Kip or Liv or Iron Fist? No word. Which could be good news, right? If they'd done anything disastrous, our spies would be more likely to hear about it, right? Corvin didn't say anything for a while, refusing to take such weak solace. He wasn't a man to grasp after straws or to believe that tragedy couldn't befall him. The deaths of two wives had cured him of idealism. Our spies did report that there's some kind of king of the color whites, uh, a polychrome white. They're calling him Lord Omnichrome. No word on who he was before breaking the pact, unless he's a true wild polychrome. Gavin shrugged. Just another problem among hundreds. But he knew Corvin was laying all the potential problems on the table, so Gavin could make his own choices about what was and was not important. What do you want to do, Lord Prism? I want to kill Ras Karadul. Corvin said nothing. Didn't move to order an assassination or something similarly stupid. Gavin's father, damn him, had predicted even this. If you lose the city, kill Rask Harador. Gavin had been sure he could save the city and hadn't arranged assassins to kill Rask. He should have done both. Too late now. Unless Rask charged him tomorrow as foolishly as he had done yesterday. I'll help as much as I can while performing my religious duties, but... Seven years, seven great purposes. Here I was trying to do something good for once. I failed, Corvin. Order the evacuation. Judging from the cold air licking his skin, it was well after midnight when Kip was escorted through some kind of gate. He had to judge from the temperature because he was wearing a blindfold, along with a black sack over his head, a noose around his neck, hands bound behind his back. Kip had overheard the guards talking in awe about something they referred to as Brightwater Wall. They passed through slowly, stopping and starting. Don't stand there and pick your butt! Move deeper in the cop, you're blocking everyone else! The last couple of days had been like this. Kip had woken in darkness, darkness that turned out to be a blindfold, his hands bound at his sides. When he struggled to get it off, men had come. They removed the blindfold, one stared at his eyes, pulling them wide open with rough fingers. Then they blindfolded him again. His left hand was agony. That first day, if it was just a day, they had dosed his wine with something foul that dulled his pain and his senses. 
They'd taken him to see Lord Omnichrome, withholding Kip's dosed wine so he would be lucid, but they never removed the blindfold. They'd sat in a tent with many voices for hours, with Kip in agony, and then they'd left. Apparently, the Lord was too busy to see him. After a while, Kip heard his guards arguing. A clever man would have figured out some way to exploit their divisions. Kip just stood quietly, wondering when his next dose would be. His hand was throbbing. They handed him off to someone else, literally handing over the noose around his neck. What are you going to give him the puppy wine? Why, well, that's good puppy on bad blubber. I like puppy wine my own self. Ah, that stuff tastes foul. I don't drink it for the taste. <laughs> Let's go. I saw some woman a ways back. Well, your time and my puppy wine, yeah. <laughs> Kip was pulled into a wagon. He stumbled up the steps and nearly strangled on the noose, but soon found his seat. Someone loosened his noose, pulled it off, took off his hood, pulled off his blindfold. Kip? Kip blinked. Though the light in the violet room was dim, after two days in total darkness, it made his eyes water nonetheless. But through the blear of his tears, he made out Karis White Oak. Karis? Kip, what are you doing here? I'm here to rescue you! <laughs> Kip, how much poppy wine did they give you? It had been hours since they'd given him wine. Karis guided Kip to her pallet in the wagon. He fell asleep instantly. She stared at him. A hard, mean part of her wanted to hate him. My son would be Kip's age. Hell, Kip could be my son. He does have blue eyes. And my grandmother was Perean. What, you think brown skin and kinky hair skips a generation like twins? Karis rubbed her face. It was an idle fantasy and she knew it. The son she'd abandoned was Kip's half-brother, but any similarities they shared would be because they shared Gavin as a father. And what a father he'd been to both boys. She had to get out of here. She was thinking too much. Karis watched Kip sleep, seeing the guile blood in the shape of his brow and his nose. And she couldn't even name the feelings in her heart. Eventually, she covered him with her blanket. Gavin survived the noon rituals. The Luxiot, a perfectly well-intentioned young green, was shaking like a leaf through the whole thing. Garriston wasn't exactly a prime posting, so no doubt the young man hadn't expected to ever catch a glimpse of the prism, much less meet him, much less be responsible for performing the Sunday ritual with him. They muddled through, Gavin prompting the young man with his lines two or three times. It took an hour and a half, and that was with Gavin cutting short the list, beseeching Orholm's blessing on every noble in the Seven Satrapies and every official in the Chromaria. If even Orholm can't remember their names, maybe they aren't all that important, eh? The young Luxiad was left gaping. It was early afternoon before Gavin could escape. Escape being relative, of course. He had a dozen blackguards, a secretary, four messengers, and a dozen city guards accompanying him. He went to the docks, ably directing the mess. The crowd wasn't as bad as he had assumed it would be. Perhaps people were holding out hope that Gavin would save them. Perhaps after seeing him build an impossible wall, they thought his powers were unlimited. Perhaps some were simply religiously observant. Only absolutely necessary work was supposed to be done on this holiest of days. Good thing staying alive doesn't count as absolutely necessary. 
Many nobles were bartering with ship captains. Boxes of goods were piled on the docks, and plenty of goods that weren't in boxes. Rolled up tapestries that must have hung in families' great halls, furniture with gold leaf paint, artwork, a maze of trunks packed with Orholomnu what? Lord Prism. General Danavis came up to Gavin quickly. Perfect timing. Which means you were about to hand over some truly unpleasant duty. I gave the order yesterday that no ships were to leave the harbor in case an evacuation became necessary. I let it be known that disobedience meant seizure of the ship for the captain and death for whoever hired him. Who was it? Governor Krasos. His men fired on the black guards who went to stop them. Any hurt? No, Lord Prism. He's here? Governor Krasos was indeed barely ten paces away. He'd just been surrounded by guards much taller than he was, blocking him from sight. His hands were bound behind his back, and one eye was swelling. A motley collection of smugglers were brought forward with him, scruffy, hard-edged men who'd taken on the job knowing the risks. I hereby convene this adjudication in the light of Orholem's eye. Let justice be done. The accused were pushed roughly to their knees. Humility before justice. Governor, you're accused of hiring a ship to flee the city against the orders of the general in charge. Is this true? General, I'm the governor of this shithole. No one tells me what to do. Not even I? The general was acting in my name, given explicit authority to do so. Did you hire this crew to leave the city? You've got 50 witnesses who'll tell you I did. So what? We helped you. My family stood by you in the war. You wouldn't be here without us. You're going to put these peasants in front of me? Captain, you acknowledge your attempt to flee? The captain looked around, defiant, unbroken, but not quite daring to meet the prism's eye. Yes, sir. The governor hired us last night. I already wanted out. It is an old tradition to grant one pardon on Sunday. As Orholem is merciful, so should we be merciful. Oh, thank you, Orholem, and his prism among us. You won't regret this, Lord Prism. <laughs> Captain, by rights, I should lock you in a cell and leave you there to whatever fate might find you. Instead, I'm going to release you, I'm going to give you my ship. The ship you forfeited and your crew. I'll be watching you, Captain. Serve well. The captain looked polaxed. Then, embarrassingly, his eyes welled with sudden tears. What? Governor Krasos, you have disobeyed my order and demeaned your office. A governor is to bear up his people, not weigh them down. You have stolen from the people or Holm gave you the duty to lead. You are a thief and a coward. I hereby strip you of your governorship. You wanted to take your riches and leave? So be it. Gavin selected a trunk from among those Crassus had taken with him. It was full of rich clothing, large, and so heavy that one man would have trouble holding it. Gavin shot large holes in the top, bottom, and sides. Guards, you will place the trunk in the governor's arms and you'll bind it to him with rope. That way he will never be without his riches. You, you can't do this! It's done. Your only choice now is how you face it. You, you can't do this! My family will hear of this! Then let them hear you died like a man. It was like Gavin had slapped the man across the face. His family obviously meant everything to him. 
Gavin drafted a blue platform. You wanted to flee, Lord Krasos? Go! Without hesitation, Lord Krasos walked down the steps of Blue Luxon and out onto the water, carrying his trunk. He got about 15 paces before the Luxon cracked and he fell into the water. In moments, he was kicking to keep the buoyant chest from bobbing over his head and drowning him. The tide was just turning, so he merely sloshed back and forth, neither pushed in closer to shore nor washed out toward the other piers or toward the Guardian in the open sea. A thousand pairs of eyes watched him. Oh, hold up! Damn you! More death. Gavin hadn't liked Crassos, hated his attitude, hated the type of noble he represented, who took and took and never thought to give a crumb back. But Gavin had just killed a man, made enemies of his family, and this in the midst of a war that would have done the job for him. Gavin watched for the bubbles and didn't see any. Crassos had floated too far out. Gavin raised his hands and then brought them in. Or Holum have mercy. He'd already spent too much time here. He turned. Behind him in the bay, a shark's fin cut the water like an arrow headed for its target. At sunset, Gavin had finished the most public of the rituals of the day. It was a big show, and he did his best to make each one special. It was one part of the day he could feel good about. He always performed nearly naked. Colors bloomed and raced through his body, out of his body, and gave the appearance of going back into him. It hurt a little to use so much magic after yesterday's fight, but it was one thing he wouldn't compromise. All too soon, however, it was over, and people were retiring to their parties. The parties would go all night. Sunday lasted until the next dawn. The parties of those to be freed would begin at full dark. Gavin was sitting in a little chapel in the fortress. He had a few minutes, supposedly to pray. There was a time when he had used it to pray. No more. If Orholm was real, he was busy. He was asleep. He didn't care. He was taking a shit. Time was different to Orholm, they said. That would explain why he'd been doing it for Gavin's entire life. <coughs> Gavin's chest felt tight. The chapel seemed too small, too dark. He was sweating, cold, clammy sweat. He closed his eyes. Get some balls, Gavin. You can do this. You've done it before. This is for them. It's a lie. It's all a lie. It's better than the alternative. Breathe. This isn't for you. You want to go out there and tell those drafters waiting for you that their entire lives are a fraud? That their service is a waste? That Oholum doesn't see their sacrifice? That what they've done, what they've given, doesn't matter? Everyone dies, Gavin. Don't rob it of meaning for these people. Don't make them see themselves as worthless. Their sacrifice is empty. All life is meaningless. It was the same debate he had with himself every year. He'd even brought a bucket with him into the chapel, along with extra incense. He threw up some years. Lord Prism, it's time. Kip wasn't blindfolded the next night. Instead, they gave him darkened glasses, bound them around the back of his head, 
pulling them tight against his eyes and ripped the sleeves off his shirt. It would be hard to draft, and anyone around him would have ample warning. Apparently, there's something they want us to see. Kara spoke as the guards, mirrormen and drafters, hustled them out of the wagon they'd been sharing. They were brought to a security perimeter out away from the tents. It was oddly separate from the rest of the camp, given far too much room. The perimeter itself was simply a rope strung between posts pounded quickly into the ground, but it was huge, and no one from the camp even came close to violating the circle. Inside, looking tiny compared to the size of the circle, was a crowd gathered before a platform. The sun had fully set, but it wasn't yet dark. They don't want to be overheard. Tells you how crazy they are. They're going to rally the troops with some idiocy any norm would mock outright. Norm? Oh, a person who can't draft. Wait, that means... As they were walked closer, Kip saw that his inference was correct. Every single person here was a drafter. There has to be 800 or 1,000 drafters here. Oh, there must be 500 drafters here. So I can't count. So what? But even Kip's bravado melted away as they got closer. His and Karis's tenders pushed them into the crowd. And the first person they pushed out of the way stared at them with wild green eyes. His halos were cracked, snakes of green wriggling through the whites of his eyes. Kip felt like he was passing through a menagerie. It seemed almost everyone light-skinned enough for it to show had skin stained by Luxon. Green, blue, red, yellow, orange, even purple. When he looked into the superviolet, the superviolet drafters stood out like beacons. They'd worked designs into their cloaks, their armor, even their skin, all invisible to anyone but other superviolets. Adjusting his eyes, Kip saw that the subreds had done the same, etching dragons, phoenixes, whorls, and flames onto their clothes. Blues wore spikes curling like ram's horns or knife edges along their forearms. They passed an orange. The man looked normal except that he'd slicked back his hair with orange luxin as if it were hair oil, and the whites of his eyes were solid orange, leaving no differentiation from white to iris, only the tiny black dots of his pupils marring that perfect color. There was a green clad only in leaves. <laughs> a menagerie indeed, except that Kip was in the cage with the animals. They were brought all the way to the front. The crowd was arrayed in front of a stone rising out of the ground. Its surfaces worn smooth by wind and rain, but tall enough to be a platform. As Kip and Karis arrived, a man wearing a hooded cloak climbed up on the rock. He reached the top of the stone, threw back his hood, and tore off his cloak, throwing it aside as if it disgusted him. The man's entire body glowed in the gathering dark. He stood defiant, silent, legs braced. He extended a hand toward the crowd, and at every five paces in a wave, torches burst into flame, bathing them in light. Last, torches ringing his stone platform caught fire. Kip saw that the man was made entirely of Luxon, and he was glowing from within. All around, drafters were dropping to their knees before Lord Omnichrome. But not all of them. Those who stood looked awkward, conflicted. For those who bowed weren't just bowing, they were pressing their faces to the ground. This was pure religious devotion. Don't bow. That's no god. What is he? My brother. Lord Omnichrome extended his hands. Please, no! Brothers, sisters, stand! Stand with me. We have fallen prostrate before men for far too long.
The orange drafter, the artist to Hyatt, fell prostrate before Gavin. He was to be the first of the night. It was an honored place, and a Hyatt deserved honor. Real honor, not this travesty. But there was no way out. There never was. Gavin stepped forward. Stand, my child. Ahayad stood. He met Gavin's eyes, then quickly looked away. You have something to say? This is the time. Some drafters felt the need to confess sins or secrets. Some made requests. Some just wanted to express a frustration, a fear, a doubt. Depending on the number of drafters to be freed before dawn, each year, Gavin took as much time with each drafter as he could. I failed you, Lord Prism. I failed my family. They always said I was the son who could have been great. Instead, I'm a waste. An addict. I'm the gifted one who couldn't handle Orhalem's gift. Look at me. You joined me in the greatest work I have ever done. You did what I, the Prism, couldn't do. Any man who has seen a sunset knows that Orholem values beauty. You made that wall as beautiful and terrible as Orholem himself. What you did will stand for a thousand years. But we lost! We lost. My failure, not yours. Kingdoms come and go, but that wall will protect thousands yet unborn. And it will inspire hundreds of thousands more. I couldn't have done that. Only you could. You, Ahayad, have made beauty. Orholem gave you a gift, and you have given a gift to the world. That doesn't sound like failure to me. Your family will be proud. I am proud of you, Ahayad. I will never forget you. You have inspired me. It is a pretty great piece, huh? Not bad for your first try. <laughs> a Hyatt was a light indeed. A gift to the world. Beautiful and so burning with life. Are you ready, son? Gavin Guile, my Lord Prism, you, sir, are a great man and a great Prism. Thank you. I am ready. A Hyatt Brightwater or Holem gave you a gift. The last name was the invention of the moment. In Perea, the only people given two names were great men and women, and sometimes their children. From the sudden tears welling in Ahayad's eyes, his chest swelling with pride, Gavin knew that he'd said the perfect thing. And you have stewarded well the gift he gave you. It is time to lay your burden down, Ahayad Brightwater. You gave the full measure. Your service will not be forgotten, but your failures are hereby blotted out, forgotten, erased. Well done, true and faithful servant. You have fulfilled the pact. They say we take a pact. We make an oath. And with that oath, they bind us. They bury us. Liv was pushing carefully through the throng, moving toward the front. She swore she'd seen Kiplet there, black spectacles bound to his head. But everyone else was paying rapt attention to the freak up front, so she couldn't move too quickly. Instead, she pretended to listen too, and moved slowly. Like this! 
Lord Omnicrome gestured to the rounded stone on which he stood. This is all that's left of what was once a great civilization. You have seen these relics scattered throughout this land. Statues of great men, broken by the pygmies who follow. You think these statues are a mystery? They're no mystery. You think it was a coincidence the Prism's war ended here in Tyria? You think the Guiles simply wandered the Seven Satrapies until their armies found each other? And it happened to be here? Let me tell you something you already know. Something that all of you have believed, but no one dared to say. The wrong Guile won the Prism's war. Dazen Guile was trying to change things, and they killed him for it. The Chromeria killed Dazen Guile. They killed him because they were worried he would change everything. They feared him because Dazen Guile wanted to free us. There was some consternation in the crowd at that phrase. They all knew what day it was, and that the prison was in Garriston, not even a league away, performing the freeing this very night. You see? You feel that uneasiness? Because the Chromeria has twisted our very language against us. Dazen wanted to free us. Dazen knew that light cannot be chained. The freeing, they call it. Lay your burdens down, the prism says. I give you absolution and freedom, he says. Do you know what he gives us? Do you know? I give you absolution. I give you freedom. Or Holem bless you and take you to his arms. Gavin drew his knife and buried it in a Hyatt's chest. <laughs> right in the heart, he withdrew the blade. A perfect thrust. But then, he'd had a lot of practice. He didn't look at the wound, didn't watch the blood bloom on the Hyatt's shirt. He held the boy's eyes as the life went out of them. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Gavin sheathed the dagger, and he scrubbed his hands on the blood rag he carried, even though they were clean. They murder you! They stick a knife in you and watch you die! As you beg, they watch, and they say their God smiles on this. Tell me, is this any way to treat our elders? Under the Chromeria, we barely have elders. They've killed them all! Oh, except for the White. Except for Andros Guile and his wife. The rules don't apply to them. But you and me and our mothers and our fathers, we should be killed. They say this is Orhorum's will. They say it is the pact. Like something we swore to as ignorant children makes their murder of our parents good and right. What insanity is this? A woman serves the seven satrapies for all her life, and then, as a reward, she's murdered? Is this freedom? This is what they call freeing her? Liv caught sight of Kip, but she wasn't pushing toward him anymore. You know it's wrong! I know it's wrong! They know it's wrong! That's why they speak about it in hushed tones and euphemisms. It's not just 
It's not a freeing, it's a murder. Let's be clear about that. And then they don't even have the decency to give your body back to your family. They use it in some dark ritual instead. Is that what our fathers served so long to get? Is that just? The Chromaria soils everything it touches. And do you think that all who are freed have volunteered? <laughs> the Blackguards took Ahayat's body out of the room, careful not to spill any blood. One strike, followed by nothing. Just the one knock on the door. It took Gavin a moment to remember. Bass the Simple had never really understood knocking. Come in, boss. Children and idiots. This is who I kill. I bathe in the blood of innocence. Bass was actually quite handsome, dressed in his finery. Unlike other simpletons Gavin had known, there was no sign of Bass's difference in his facial features. I, 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 I am sorry for coming out of turn, Lord Prism. I, I have a question and I did not wish to interrupt my freeing to ask it. That he was interrupting someone else's freeing to ask the question didn't occur to him, of course. Please ask. I, I heard Evie Grass talking about Brightwater Wall. Evie is a green-yellow bichrome. She's from the Blood Forest, but I, I, I don't think she's scary at all. My mother used to tell me that anyone with red hair is just as like to set you on fire as look at you. But Evie isn't like that. Gavin knew Evie well. Not classically bright. She was incredibly intuitive, but rarely trusted herself. At least, she hadn't years ago. Evie once saved me from a charging... What did she say, boss? She, 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 she didn't say anything. She just saved me. I guess she might have yelled. I, I couldn't tell you for sure. What did Evie say about Brightwater Wall? I, 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 I don't like it when you interrupt, Lord Prism. It, 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 it makes me nervous. Gavin stifled his impatience. Pushing harder would make Bass completely incapable of speech. Bass saw that Gavin wasn't going to push, and then thought for a moment. Gavin could see him find the mental path once more. Evie? Evie said the bright water was drafted perfectly. She said she didn't remember you being a superchromat. I can't see the color differentiations myself, of course, but I don't think she'd lie. And Gavin Guile wasn't a superchromat. His brother Dazen was, and you're taller than Gavin. He wore boots to make himself look taller, but Dazen was taller by his 13th birthday. Oh, I remember that day it was sunny. My grandmother said Gavin that wasn't listening. He felt like the floor had dropped out from under his feet. He'd known this moment was coming. He'd expected it for 16 years. He'd gone into his first meetings as Gavin, expecting anyone, everyone, to point and scream. Others had figured it out, but never in a way he couldn't contain. He couldn't discredit Bass. The man was immune to political currents, and everyone knew it. And if asked, Bass would point out a hundred differences between Gavin and Dazen. By the time he was done speaking, the Gavin mask would be destroyed. And yet, he'd come alone on this night of all nights. I don't like questions. They always make my head hurt. They... Uh, questions. 
So, my question was, my question was, why are you lying, Dazen? Why are you pretending to be Gavin? Dazen is bad. He kills people. He killed the White Oaks, all of them. They say he went from room to room in their mansion, even killing the servants, and then he burned it all down to hide his crimes. The children were... The children were trapped in the basement. They found the little bodies in, 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 in a pile. They were hugging each other. I, I went there. I saw them. Bass was evidently consumed by that old image. With his perfect memory, it must have been vivid indeed. I told those little charred bodies that I would kill Dathan Guile. Gavin felt an old dread, like the sting of an old master's lash. Bass was a green-blue superviolet polychrome. Every drafter was changed over time by his colors. Only the wildness of green would make the formerly order-obsessed Bass skip his place in line. But the orderliness of blue was making him crazy to know why, to see how things fit together. Boss, I'm going to tell you something I've only told one other person in the world. I'm going to answer your question. You deserve it. When I was 16 years old, I had, I had a vision, a waking dream. I was in front of a presence. I fell on my face. I, I knew he was holy, and I was afraid. Holem, Holem himself. My mother told me that people who say they speak for Holem are usually lying. Dazen is a liar! Do you want to hear my answer or not? Yes, but you don't... <laughs> Gavin stabbed him in the heart. Bass's eyes went wide. He grabbed Gavin's arms. <laughs> you gave the full measure, boss. Your service will not be forgotten. Your failures are forgotten. Erased. I give you absolution. I give you freedom. By the time he said absolution, Bass was dead. <sighs> Gavin lowered the man to the floor carefully. He went and knocked at the side door. The blackguards came in and took the body. And just like that, Gavin got away with murder.